Jr., Mr. Brad Pitt. I am a big fan of your movies. I've watched all of them at least twice. But that is not why I'm writing you today. Not only have I watched them all repeatedly, I've encouraged others to do the same. In the case of Thelma and Louise, tens of thousands of times. <laughs> I'm not some big shot Hollywood movie mogul. I'm just a regular person that offers copies of your movies for a nominal fee. See, I write you today not as a fan, but as a businessman. Your movies have helped me achieve a success I've never dreamed of. There's no child that has the dream to do this, to become this. As a child, I wanted to become a detective, a spy, or a baseball player. Normal kid dreams. Life takes unexpected turns. One day I was clinging to the rocks on the river of life, sitting at a cubicle in a basement, and then I let go. Scared, wet, and screaming, the river slammed me against its rough underbelly. Bloodied and naked, I survived everything the river threw at me. It, it wasn't that dramatic, sorry. Really, it was winter. Winter had led me to this life, to writing you this letter. Living north of 25 degrees latitude, when winter comes, the life-giving vitamin D that the sun provides disappears. Living as you do in Malibu, winter is something you probably only see on TV. A ghost story you tell your many children. For me, that ghost story was real. For the first 37 years of my life, every winter, I slowly died. Perhaps I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. You don't know me. You're probably turning to Ange right now asking her if she knows how I got your address. Let me explain. You see, this is not my first job or even my oddest. My oddest was in college. I worked for a man named Bob. Bob sweated Vaseline. His diet consisted solely of bush light, but somehow his metabolism converted the alcohol into a petroleum byproduct and sieved it through his pores, primarily the pores of his face. Bob had placed an ad with the college I was attending. Wanted students to help maintain my estate. Pay is negotiable. Myself and a few other friends accepted. It was summer break and we needed the money. We needed the money for the usual things. Gas, concert tickets, grow lamps. This sounded like it would be an all right gig. Twice a week we'd go to Bob's estate. Really just a normal split level house with attached two car garage. There, Bob would assign each of us a task. The girls would have tasks like flirting with Bob. This sounds easy, but they had it the worst. Bob, as I already mentioned, sweated Vaseline. He was also about 60 years old, but had the physique of a recently deceased body. Bloated with decaying gases and stiff from rigor mortis, Bob also had a limited wardrobe. It was summer, and for him it was the summer of 1964, the summer of his youth. He wore a baseball hat stained with yet-to-be-discovered sauces, a t-shirt that accentuated his man breasts, 
and Daisy Duke style cutoff jeans. My chin starts to quiver in that pre-vomit spasm every time I think of him and what happened in his bedroom. Well, I did it to myself. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead again. So the girls would flirt with Bob and me and the other guys would do chores. For example, one day I spent six hours vacuuming a six by four foot room. When I was done, the shag carpeting was reduced to a tight pile. That was a light day. Most days at Bob's, I spent with industrial cleaners such as Brasso or two butoxyethanol, which eats through bone and is a powerful degreaser. I'd use these products in poorly ventilated rooms until my snot turned black. Bob's house, his estate, was less a home and more a museum. It was a time capsule of roughly 1984. His record collection, furniture, television, wallpaper, spices, he had a bottle of MSG that was sweated shut. All of his things, they were last in style in the mid-80s. At the end of the workday, each of us would sit alone with Bob and negotiate our pay. The girls always got paid the most and frankly they deserved it. Each of them started that summer as a happy 20 year old full of life with youthful skin. At the end, they were haggard as if they'd been living in an illegal truck stop. One day, I was the last to sit with Bob to negotiate my pay. Everyone else was waiting in the car I'm sure impatient for me to hurry up so we could leave and head to a fish concert nine hours away. Bob, he had other ideas. He led me into his bedroom and... Bob was a sad man that sweated Vaseline. He lived alone and his house was a time capsule from 1984, the year his wife left him. From seeing the photos on display, at one time, Bob was a good-looking man successful with a lot of friends. When his wife left, I guess he began to die. I felt sorry for him. That day, when I followed Bob into his bedroom, he dropped his Daisy Duke shorts and asked me to rub ointment on a boil, a boil that was on his left ass cheek. Maybe it was a day spent huffing Brasso, or maybe I felt sorry for him, but I did it. I rubbed the boil with the ointment and I ran. When I got to the car and told my friends what had happened, none of them believed me. I pleaded, why would I lie? How else would I know that he has a flower garden tattoo on his right ass cheek? A tattoo that was clearly done to cover her name, Charlene. That was my last day working for Bob. I couldn't go back. The others, they went back the next day. Casey. One of the other guys working for Bob was asked to apply ointment that following day. I hear Casey's doing okay now. It was at Bob's that I first heard of Tonga. Mr. Brad Pitt, thank you for being patient with me. But you see, Tonga is important to our story. Bob had a collection of old National Geographic magazines in pristine condition. The spines were without creases. The gold coloring was still perfect. I grabbed one at random and it flipped open to an article about the Friendly Kingdom. It looked warm and inviting. 
In an aside, the article said it was the best place to experience the end of the 20th century as we entered the 21st. It's weird, but Kiribati gets all the press for being on the dateline. But that's just a publicity stunt. Tonga has always been the first to experience the new day. Kiribati was always last, but it's just a line. Over the next few years, I never thought about Tonga again. There was no way I could know that a long, dormant memory from that brief moment I worked for a man that sweated Vaseline so that I could buy Blueberry Kush at the Grassroots Music Festival would sprout this new direction in my life. I guess in some cosmic sense, Bob is what led me to write to you. Or it could be something earlier than that. When I was 14, Tracy, a blonde, stringy girl in my ninth grade class, introduced me to pot. She'd been smoking it since the fifth grade. I always thought of her as mystical. In ninth grade, the age of the uncontrolled tumescence, I learned that she was like many other mystics. Ram Das, Sai Baba, Lemmy. They were all high. The thought of inhaling an odd-smelling vapor through a glass tube that looked like a reject from a Dutch sex shop did not appeal to me. Smoking is gross. The only positive is that, with enough time, your voice can sound cool. I wanted to sound cool. Mainly, I wanted to get inside Tracy. That's when I started smoking pot. It's also the same year I had to go to summer school for answering C on my math tests. Every question, I put down C as the answer. C. It was funny because they weren't multiple choice tests. My parents didn't find it funny, but Tracy did, so who cares what those two old people thought. Tracy was in summer school with me. It wasn't really summer school. Once a week, we met in a bookish woman's garage. She would give us practice tests and answer our questions. Why are we here? Out of all of the places in the universe, why us? Tracy would ask questions like that with sincerity. I would ask questions like, do I work on the numbers inside the parentheses first or the ones on the outside the parentheses? Miss Linda, our summer school teacher, never answered my questions. Instead, she would spend our time arguing with Tracy about the epistemological truths of the world we live in. Why us? Why here? Why now? Miss Linda would say. Those answers are not important. We, in the grand scheme, are nothing more than random events. It's not the why, it's the what, she'd tell us. The what we do with our time. Do we spend it trying to enrich ourselves? Or do we spend it trying to ease the suffering of the world? If at the end of time, we, us, everyone, are truly meaningless, with no legacy, shouldn't we make our time here more pleasant for others? No one had ever spoken to me this way before. I never thought of myself as being insignificant, or that I was a random event in a vast universe. I thought I was me with a unique condition that resulted in uncontrolled tumescence. Maybe Miss Linda was right. None of it mattered. If none of it mattered, then I should declare my feelings of lust, of awe, for Tracy right at that moment. 
the energy in the garage changed that day. I turned to Tracy and began to speak. I love... Uh, but the words got cut off by Miss Linda telling us that she was in love with Tracy. Tracy, she said, I know this is wrong. I'm old enough to be your mother. In fact, your mother is my best friend. But I think the wrongness of it, the illicitness of it, and the feeling that my loins make it right. I love you, Tracy. Those are the words I wanted to say. I didn't know Tracy's mother, but the loins part, that was right. Tracy responded to Miss Linda with a beautific smile, placed her hand on top of Miss Linda's and said, I know. She looked at me with that same smile and said, not a chance. A few years later, Tracy and Miss Linda ran away to run a canned asparagus farm in the deserts of Peru. But that was high school. In college, I decided to throw myself into every possible situation to really explore and find something I truly loved. I tried the Creative Anachronism Society where we dressed up in middle-aged garb, jousted, and synthesized bubonic plague. The young Republicans, eight guys wearing slacks, not chinos, slacks, Oxford shirts, shoes with actual pennies in them, and we drank, drank and complained about not having sex. The campus newspaper where I got to try journalism. I wrote about the university's mascot named Fido, where for some reason a kid named Tony would dress up as a dog. This made no sense because the team's name was the Revolutionaries. The enlisted mascots, the official ones, dressed up like members of FARC and would regularly kidnap the opposition, holding them for ransom. We won every game that year. The robotics club was, well, they were the best. Every Sunday they would ransack the local radio shack and spend the next day inhaling solder fumes as they disemboweled cheap Casio synthesizers, electronic toy banks in the shapes of cats, and remote-controlled blenders. At the end of their experiments, they would have a towering collection of electronic garbage. They weren't building robots. No. They were learning to live in a post-robotic society, one where humans would have to survive in super fun-like conditions. And then we'd get high. Sometimes there would be girls. From there, the local Greenpeace chapter was the next obvious stop for me. What attracted me was Karen. Karen had a dancer's body without the smoker's cough. Yes, I care about the environment, Karen. I will stand outside in the cold for hours, pestering strangers to give me their credit card details so they too can show that they care about the environment. Now, do you want to go to that new vegan restaurant with me? Yes, you do? But who is this man you are bringing on our date? Our first of many dates. The date where we will tell our grandchildren our love started. Why does this man, the man reeking of patchouli, have his hand on your ass and his tongue in your mouth? Who is this man ruining our date? Jasper? He's your lover? But you want me to be your lover also? Jasper, why is your hand on my ass? In the end, it turns out that I don't really care about the environment. Mother Nature has her own plans, and 
They involve multiple men with names like Jasper, Tree, Creek, Boudin, Fromage, Whisper, Return to Sender, Recycler. After Karen, I decided it was time to grow up to throw off my stupid dilettante quest through hobbies. I shaved and got a nice job, working in a nice office, at a nice desk, in a basement, typing in people's handwritten sweepstakes entries into a computer of a massive data mining firm. This was my new hobby, my new life. There were no Karens, Tracys, or weed, but once a month, on a designated Friday, we could wear Hawaiian shirts. For a decade, I sat in that basement. Tuesdays were okay because we could scrounge the leftover pastries from the weekly executive meeting. All of the good stuff was picked over, but every now and then, a chocolate croissant or lemon tart would be hidden underneath a bagel or found nearly drowned in melting ice used to keep the juice cool. It wasn't the Cannes Film Festival or a photo shoot for Vogue, but it was honest. One day while staring at the tilted E in the logo of my computer, I replayed old memories. Maybe it was the smell of the Nivea lotion that Allison, the woman that sat in the cube next to mine, would lather on her hands, but my thoughts turned to Bob. Bob and his greasy face. Bob and his cancerous looking boil. Bob and his Earth, Wind & Fire 8 tracks and Bob and his National Geographic collection. Visit the Friendly Kingdom. That was the title of the article. Friendly Kingdom. The unhurried and unspoiled islands of Tonga give you the perfect setting to unwind. Yes, this is what I needed. I needed to unwind. I went to the website of the Kingdom of Tonga. It was filled with pictures of whales and white sand beaches. It was what I needed. It was warm. New York City to Tonga. Google responded with, Did you mean Tahiti? No, I, I don't think so. Unless Tonga is in Tahiti. Is Tonga in Tahiti? Tonga is real. I know it is. I read an article, and now I was on its website. I clicked on the section labeled Tonga News. The most recent entry was dated seven months prior. A two-days convention recognizing the importance of the practice of handicrafts was officially opened last week at the Fa Anoli Convention Center. Handicrafts? Don't kingdoms knight people or invade people or do some other kingly things? Alright, Tonga, the friendly kingdom. Now with knitting. After scrolling through pictures of whales, beaches, and wizened old ladies, I clicked on the section labeled getting to and around. Nothing found. Not page not found. Nothing found. The news hasn't been updated for months and there are no instructions for getting there. The Tonga of the internet was a mystery to me. I called Delta. Tonga, the agent repeated back to me completely nonplussed. Tonga as if the last five callers also wanted to book travel there. Tonga as if it were Toledo. Tonga, we could do that. Through the phone, I could hear the agent click the keys of an IBM Model M keyboard. The Model M was much sought after for its long key throw. It's a manly keyboard. 
Not like those soft keyboards that Apple hires slaves to install on its products. This IBM keyboard was built when America made things, loud things. A week later, the agent responded, JFK to LAX to AKL to TBU, 28 hours, coach class, $1,400 round trip. How would you like to pay for that? I said I only needed a one-way ticket. I could hear the agent alert authorities. One way, that's highly frowned upon. For one way, the price doubled. Fine, I'll take round trip. The agent was happy and the authorities canceled their rendition plans. Take off, landing, take off, landing, take off, landing. And then I'd be at the Fuamoto International Airport on the island of Tonga Tapu in the kingdom of Tonga. 28 hours and I'd be warm, surrounded by friendly faces. I didn't even quit my job. I just left in the middle of the day in the middle of my boss telling me that he knows I'm super busy, but it would be great if I could also create a PowerPoint presentation covering our last six months of work. Don't forget to include pictures from the staff retreat to Hershey Park. Well, it was 1989 and nothing was going on in Germany, so my mother and I left. This is how Pascal told me he wound up in Tonga running the tiny hotel and restaurant I was staying at. Germany, 1989, nothing going on. Mother and son moved to the smallest dot on the globe, a day's journey from their homeland. There have been times in my life where there had been nothing going on, so I went out and tried yucca fries. Have you tried them? Who am I kidding? I, I know about your yucca farm. People Magazine did a spread on it. Never did I think to uproot my life out of nothing going on. I looked at him and just nodded. Yeah, Germany in those days must have been a real snooze fest. Not like during the time of Inglorious Bastards. Your version was much better than the original. Pascal was a friendly face I met when my plane landed. The airport on the main island of Tongatapu is small, about the size of a Denny's. There's no jetway from the plane to airport gates that led through a maze that passed luggage stores, high-end watch stores, and places selling coconut water. There were no gates, just a door leading to the tarmac. Past customs, I walked into the parking lot of the airport. There's no warning messages on loop about how the white zone is for onloading only, or that unattended vehicles will be towed. Instead, there were the Tongans. All of them. Flights arrive and depart only five times a week. When the airport has activity, everyone shows up. And there are a lot of them. And they are big, large. Tongans are big people. NFL linebacker big. Friendly? Uh, maybe. At that point, I was too afraid to make eye contact because I'm a breakfast-sized man. From between two giants, two slabs of granite, out walked Pascal. He wanted to know if I needed a place to stay. Yes, I did. The trip, my escape, was not planned well. An airline ticket is as far as I got. After that, I assumed that the friendly kingdom would embrace me. Given their size, if they did, I would die. Pascal, although he had a pencil-thin mustache and wore pants in the tropical heat, he seemed safe. 
I felt like I could take him. Slightly sinister, perhaps, but compared to Thor and Thunder that he stood next to, he seemed safe. An hour later, he was telling me how he wound up in Tonga. There was nothing going on in Germany. At his restaurant, Pascal had served me a coconut heart. It's from the top of the coconut tree. When the heart is removed, the tree dies. I wasn't going to argue with him. He had killed for me. Coconut heart tastes like, well, Germany in 1989. Nothing. I told him it was delicious. He looked pleased and offered me some entertainment. I shuddered. Traveling as a single man, I've been offered entertainment before. Drugs, girls, other drugs, other girls. Tonga was known as the friendly kingdom. Maybe their drug of choice was ecstasy. Then again, the Tongans, while friendly, were also big, huge. Their number one export was NFL defensive linemen. How do Polynesians get so damn big? They're out in the middle of nowhere with nothing. It's like Germany in 1989. Was Pascal going to offer me butter? Was butter the local drug? Some sort of fermented butter drink? I told him I was looking forward to some local entertainment. He led me five yards from the table I ate at to a group of shelves outside the bathroom. They were Limhan stainless steel shelves from Ikea. I know this because, well, everyone knows this. Like that scene in Fight Club when Jack is ordering from the Kata? You've seen it. He pointed to the contents on the shelves and told me I was free to borrow anything I like, but be sure to return them before I left. The shelves were loaded with DVDs, bootleg DVDs. The cases were poor photocopies of the originals. There were some new movies, old movies, and movies I'd never heard of. Four of the DVDs were Legends of the Fall. I opted for Wanted, a movie starring Morgan Freeman and your wife. I took the DVD back to my room, popped it into my laptop, and wished that he had drugged me instead. Painful. Don't get me wrong, she's a fabulous actor. I All of the cast was, but the script was awful. But... It was night in Tonga, and there was nothing to do. The next morning, I brought it back. Pascal asked me how it was. I told him it was a blast. He said that Brad Pitt was a lucky man to have such a pretty wife. Pascal told me that he loved you, Brad Pitt, that he felt he owed you. I looked through the rest of his DVDs. All of them starred you, or your wife. He told me out here, in this... Brad Pitt movies helped keep him connected to the world. This was 10 years ago. At first, I was a guest of Pascal's. Not long after, I began doing odd jobs around the grounds. Gardening, repairing bicycles, and when Pascal was feeling tired, share with his guests his collection of DVDs. Everyone, no matter where in the world they came from, had the same response. Brad Pitt, huh. Pascal returned to Germany about three years ago. He gave me his business. Since then, I've expanded our operations immensely, but there is not a lot of life left in DVD bootlegging. The internet is killing the business. It's still doing okay in Southeast Asia and parts of Africa, but it's on the decline. So, Brad, this is why I write you today. As of the current date, Myself and Pascal, we owe you, Mr. Brad Pitt, $937.24 in royalties for 
bootlegging your movies. Please let me know if you accept Bitcoin. Thank you for your time. Sincerely, Jeffrey Goins. P.S. I've recently come into a number of copies of The Born Identity. Could you send me contact details for Matt Damon? <laughs>